Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. Today, we have on the show Dave Scudis. Dave works as the Director of Design, Construction, and Maintenance at the Mile High Flood District. The district encompasses 1,600 square miles in and around the greater metro Denver area. Dave oversees an internal group of around two dozen staff that work to deliver over $75 million worth of infrastructure and maintenance along the region's urban waterways on an annual basis. He has worked at the district since 2010. Prior to that, he was an engineering consultant for nine years in Kansas, Nebraska, and Colorado. Dave received a Bachelor of Science degree in civil engineering from the University of Florida in December of 2000. He's a registered professional engineer, a certified floodplain manager, a lead accredited professional, and a Toastmasters competent communicator. He's also the author of the recently published book, The Effective Client, Why Being a Good Client is Smart Business in the Architecture, Engineering, and Construction Industries. We hope you enjoy today's show. Dave, welcome to the show. All right. Thanks, BJ. Good to be here. Great to have you and uh, appreciate the mutual connection and introduction from our friend John Burke. Shout out to John, uh, who was a guest not too long ago and one of the best entrepreneurial public servants we got to uh, have on the show. And you both have in common writing books mm. from, uh, from the client perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So hope we can dig into that because uh, I think I'm pretty passionate about it. But we start every interview uh, and every podcast with getting to know you. So tell us who you are, how your story started, and 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 a little bit about your career path. Oh, sure. Well, my, my current job is I work for a, a special district that's uh, called the Mile High Flood District in Denver, Colorado. And uh, as we're talking right now, Hurricane Ian is wreaking havoc to the state of Florida and lots of crazy flood footage. And I guess if you were to boil my job down really simply, it's to, to keep floods outdoors uh, rather than indoors, because that's when you, you see all the news footage and all that. Uh, but my path, I guess, if you wanted to go back to, you know, kind of where I'm from, I'll give you a really high level and you can dig in with any questions that sort of sort of come from it. So uh, I grew up in a small town outside of Lincoln, Nebraska. We had like three stoplights. Uh, we were considered a big small town because we had fast food and we had stoplights. So that was kind of a thing. <laughs> uh, moved far away for college, went to the University of Florida. So I was a Gator and then I uh, got a civil engineering degree. Um, my dad was career military and I grew up around that. And so when I got out of school, I wasn't sure I wanted to pursue civil engineering. So I thought I might want to be a pilot. I wasn't sure I wanted to go full on military so I actually was going to go in the Coast Guard and perhaps be a search and rescue pilot. And true story, about a month before I was supposed to leave for training, after I'd graduated college, they they told me they wouldn't take me because I had a bone spur on my foot. And, and that's actually a tr- true story. <laughs> I, I believe it. Yeah. Many many a candidate does not get into uh, the military academies for, for a similar issue. Yeah, they're, they're looking for something. Yeah. And so that's, that's all it took for me. And... Uh, I think it was probably for the best, I guess, but because um, I did take a flight lesson once and I got pretty airsick, so maybe <laughs> it just wasn't meant to be. Uh, one, yeah. one of those jobs that sounds cooler than it actually is. I, I, you know, not to you know dog anybody who does do that and likes that, but it just wasn't for me. 
uh, so anyway, then I ended up finding, deciding to use my civil engineering degree, worked as a consultant for around nine years, uh, first in Kansas City, then in Lincoln, Nebraska, and then I, I moved out to Denver. And I was uh, a consultant for the organization I now work for, and they were my favorite uh, people to do projects for. They were my favorite projects, and eventually I was able to get a job over here at the Flood District, and I've been here for 12 years. Awesome. Um, curious, on, on the consulting side, what type of work were you doing? Design, engineering, construction management? Uh, yeah, my first job out of school was mostly for land development clients. So I got to experience, okay. I don't know, working on a 7-Eleven, an apartment complex, uh, you know, a Walmart, that sort of thing. And it was beneficial to, to learn a lot of different disciplines. I got to try a little bit of all the different types of civil infrastructure. But the kind of environment and the clients were, I mean, it was my first exposure to a real engineering job. And I was like, oh my gosh, if this is what this is really like for the rest of my career, I, I am out. I'm going to go, I'm going to think about being a pilot again or something. But <laughs> but thankfully, uh, my so I was doing a lot of design work, plan development, things like that. And then my, my second job in Nebraska, I worked for a uh, consulting firm that did a lot more municipal work for local clients, local government clients, and also federal work. So I, I found myself on really strange places on military bases around the country sometimes doing uh, civil site design type work. Um, and then when I moved out to Colorado, it I just kept getting more and more pulled towards stormwater, flood control, those sorts of things. And uh, that's where I, I kind of found my my sweet spot. So tell us a little bit about your district and and what are the, you know, I know you boiled it down to keep floods outdoors, but <laughs> what, what exactly are all falls under your responsibility or, or area of authority, if you will? Yeah, we're a, a special district that encompasses the greater metro Denver area. And so we, uh, our funding comes from a mill levy on property taxes. So we're not county, state federal or any of those things, uh, but we exist to facilitate the rhyme and reason to how our urban waterways are, are managed as they cross city and county boundaries, because there's 40 local governments in the Denver metro area. And uh, what does that mean in practice? Uh, it means we we have an annual budget of around uh, like $90 million. A lot of it goes into capital construction for flood control and restoration projects. We do maintenance of our waterways. We have uh, a series of rain and stream gauges for, for early flood warning. We do master planning, floodplain mapping, special projects, research criteria, all those sorts of things. Any projects that you end up cost sharing with the federal government? Um, not if we can avoid it, but <laughs> to, it just kind of gets to be kind of painful. Complicates your life. It complicates our life. It really does. Yeah. We're, we're actually pretty good at uh, building great projects and spending money wisely without their help usually. But, uh, but that being said, when, when there's enough money and it's the right project, it can be a really great fit. I would say that because we encompass the metro area, um, we end up working in communities and on behalf of communities and with communities. So we're always partnering with the local agencies and consider any project we're doing their project first and foremost. Um, but we do have one really massive federally funded project that's under starting to get underway here in Denver, where the federal government's investing like $500 million in the South Platte River, which is our main river. And that's uh, 
we're kind of in the thick of that right now, figuring, figuring out what this means. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, all right. So you talked about you were a consultant, you had clients, mm -hmm. um, your, your current job or, or organization was your favorite client and you treat kind of the, the partners that you're serving as clients. So maybe that is what drove you to write a book mm -hmm. called the effective client. Yeah. Talk to us about the book and, and what you hope to accomplish out of it. Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. Um, I am fortunate to work for a form of government that's really efficient. We're small, we're nimble, we're able to get a lot of things done. And one of the values that my predecessors and, and current supervisor really instilled was just how beneficial it is to be a good customer. And uh, it really, because of all the money I said we have each year, it means that we are a constant source of work and we're every year like clockwork doing the same sorts of work all the time. And we don't have our own construction crews. We don't have our own designers in house. We manage the work, we manage the projects. And we really started to see such a value out of these long-term relationships, uh, both in quality, in efficiency, in just how pleasant it was to work with some of these folks we'd get to work with over the long term. And it really came to a crux for me in, in 2013, Colorado had a massive flood that hit about a quarter of our state. And when all these consultants and contractors had all these people knocking on their door for work, they really answered our call and to a lot of extent, uh, maintained their pricing for us too. And it was just really eye-opening to me how much they had our backs. And so I started kind of pondering like, why, why was that? What did we do? What was the magic to that? Uh, and, and I wanted to try to articulate it. And so I ended up, oh, it started as like a keynote talk, really not a keynote talk, but just a talk at a national conference I was going to do. And I decided I want to explore this topic is why does it matter to be a good client? So I just started asking people, why do you think it matters? I asked a lot of consultants and contractors. I ended up talking to around 50 people. I had all this material. It was way more than I could fit into this talk, like two or three times as much. And I got to know John Burke, who you mentioned earlier, and he was the first person I ever knew who wrote a book. And I'm like, oh my gosh, real people write books. It's like mere mortals. It's not, <laughs> wow, I've never known anybody that, and his wife even wrote a book. And I was just like, oh my gosh, both of you, this is amazing. And I, I never had set out to do that as like this life goal, but I had material that I really thought in, in a, in a message that I really thought needed to get out there. And so eventually I did the work to compile all that and to put it into book format. And basically what it says is if you, the very, very basic version of what the book says is if you want to be a good client, you have to build professional trust. You have to pay people fairly and punctually, and you have to manage risk equitably. That's what it comes down to. And, and of course, the book goes into nuance and stories that sort of flesh that out. But that was kind of what it was and why I did it. So all of those those three topics are also what make good partners. And I think that at the end of the day, that's what I'm, I'm all for public service being a steward of kind of taxpayer dollars. You're taxpayer funded, right? Like those are real dollars. And I, I love the fact that you use the term small and nimble from a government agency standpoint, because you can be effective while still being small. Mm -hmm. um, 
But I, I think at the end of the day, stewardship comes through the partnership and through building that trust and through working through problems, not trying to shift risk or place blame or, um, uh, you know, it, it everything comes down to relationships um, and I mean, and technical expertise and bringing the right resources to bear. But um, I, I love that you wrote it from the client's perspective. Um so any clients out there, I'll buy the book for you if, uh, if, if you feel the need to, to read it. That's a, funny, um, that's a funny thing about it. A lot of people who hear about it think of people they want to read it. And it is, um, but it can be awkward to, to give that to somebody and say, you should read this. Yeah. <laughs> to any, any client out there that's listening, I'm just kidding. I think that you're all great. Uh, I, I think it's important for for you know, anybody in our industry to just have that perspective of the other party, right? And whether that's a prime subcontractor relationship, a big business, small business relationship, a private sector to public sector relationship. And and I, I think, you know, it's easy to spot and talk about the many, many, many places that that goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the hopes of the podcast is that we can talk about the many, many, many places that it goes right. Because when public and private sector work together, public sector can stay lean and nimble, like you talked about, mm-hmm. being better steward, not being bloated, uh, and leveraging the expertise and the right relationships and the right resources and the right companies to uh, to support when when needed. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I'll give you an interesting example. I uh, I recently looked into some financials at our organization, and I was just looking into what what have we paid over the years for performance and payment bonds from contractors. You know, so it's basically if the contractor doesn't finish the job or if they don't pay their subs, we can make a claim on their bond, right? And it's like if we ever made a claim, we've existed for fifty years, and I could find one example in fifty years. And meanwhile, on every single construction contract over a certain threshold, we've asked for performance and payment bonds. And, and, and when I dug into this, I asked contractors, how much do those cost? And they say, well, it's about 1% of the, the contract. And I'm like, okay, so a million dollar contract means I'm paying 10 grand for a bond. And when you add up all the work we've done over the years, I mean, we've paid millions and millions and millions of dollars for bonds and never needed them except for once. And never gotten the value out of it. And it's just this risk aversion that we pay for, this risk avoidance that we pay for and never really get any benefit from. And it's why are we doing this? Yeah, that's that's an interesting I, I, uh, economic problem. Um, I'd be curious what the what the actual number said. So if you, you know, because if you're doing billions of dollars of work, that's 1% of billions of dollars of work. And the one time that you had to claim it, Mm -hmm. not to mention the legal fees and the, you know, all the other stuff that goes into it. So it's an interesting economic problem, but you know, the, the flip side of that is when it goes wrong, how wrong can it go? Mm -hmm. And how much does that bond help? Um, Yeah. So we kind of decided to to reserve some, some money to more or less self-insure if you will, because it's it is just kind of a, a longer term, smarter thing for us. That's uh, I I love that idea, and I think it's pretty entrepreneurial. I'd love to 
to see the white paper if you would do it on <laughs> on on how you how you came to that decision and what um what the economic side of that looks like internally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't um, it wasn't just like a five minute conversation. We had to dig into that a little I'm bit. Sure. <laughs> um, well, I'd, I'd be curious, and and I'd love to share that on on the podcast or or on our website if you if you go down that rabbit hole. Sure. Um, you don't have to write another book for it, though. That's that's good. I'm not sure that would that would keep my energy up to write up. Maybe that's a blog. You know, some books should should have been yeah, a blog. There you go. That's uh, right. And sometimes people write a book, and it's like, okay, you beat the same thing to death for 200 pages, and it, I got it in the in the intro, you know, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, talk to us. I mean, you, you've you've seen the industry from different perspectives. Uh, I'm sure you've had plenty of leadership and project challenges. Any any lessons learned that have served you well through your career? I guess one sort of simple high-level one is that conflict is an opportunity to make the relationship better. It's kind of, it's like a challenge and an opportunity. Um, I had somebody really wise, uh, an instructor for like a leadership class of some sort, tell me once that whenever you enter into a new relationship, there's going to be this honeymoon phase. And then inevitably and variably, and whether this is personal or professional, some there's going to be conflict at some point. And then how that conflict gets handled, the relationship won't be the same after. It's, it's, a, it's a non-neutral thing. So it's either going to get better or it's going to get worse. And I really see conflict, the potential for conflict. And when I use the word conflict, I mean something that goes sideways. It, it, it is a real opportunity to... Uh, create better relationships with your consultants and contractors, especially if you're in the ownership role. In other words, if something goes sideways and they feel like you took care of them and didn't just make everything their problem, they will remember that. And it'll make you uh, be seen as a better customer and you'll have a better relationship for it. So I, I just recently listened to a podcast around, um, a similar topic, but in, in marriage. And I want to dig into that because you and your wife created a bit of a hobby during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So share with us about your, uh, your lessons learned in podcasting with your spouse. Mm. Yeah. So my wife, Nancy, she, she's a dentist and, and she had a couple months where she was just totally shut down at the beginning of the pandemic. Like that was one job that, was like, nope, you're you're done. We're gonna shut you down for two months. Uh, so anyway, and when things were really dark and gloomy, and you weren't sure how safe it was to go, all these different places, whatever, she really wanted something like a hobby for us to do because we were home a lot, and also something to bring a little positivity into the world. So we decided to start recording some conversations we were having, and mostly in the spirit of sharing things we had learned and thought were great and wanted other people to hear, whether it was stories or, or wisdoms, that sort of thing. So that's why the podcast was called Middle-Aged Wisdom because we're in our 40s and we wanted to share wisdoms. Awesome. Uh, any any conflicts come of your, uh, <laughs> your podcasting? Conflicts? Um, I think... Not really. Like if you wanted to know if there's like a, a secret recording of us bickering on a, on a, on a podcast <laughs> that just didn't see the light of day, I can't recall that actually happening, but 
I it, it was a fun thing to try to work together on. I think we have different creative processes and different times of day when we would be ready to record or one of us is ready and then the other one gets distracted and and you're sitting there, your energy's going, you're ready to do this. And then one of you's just always like, oh, the dog needs to go out or our, our daughter needs something. And and so there'd be a, a lot of consternation to try to get ready to hit the actual record button. Um, but it was it was fun. There weren't any there wasn't any sort of difficulty with doing it. I, I would say that uh, I, I did all the editing and all that myself. And I got a little surgical with trying to remove ahs and ums and so's and misstatements. And that, that ended up being a little time consuming. So maybe a little too. Well, congratulations. I, I think it's awesome that you, you gave it a shot and you, you know, I was, I, as you said it, uh, spreading some, some positivity during what was a, a pretty gloomy time. I'd give you kudos for that. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. It was of its time. Yeah. And now it's kind of like these funny little time capsules for our daughter when she gets older. Yeah, that's cool. How old's your daughter? She's nine, so she has zero interest in listening to them now. But maybe when she's like twenty-five, we'll see. Well, my wife is has little to no interest in listening to our podcast either. So I I, I can't guarantee she's going to listen when she's older. <laughs> good, good. I agree. Good time capsule for. Her. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE-verified, service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. Moving into a bit of rapid-fire questions. Dave, you've been involved in podcasting, you've had a professional uh, career, you've got family going on. Any any current events that you're you're passionate about or tracking or uh, involved in? I don't I don't know if I'm in it'd be hard to be involved in this sort of so to speak because it's such a big issue, but I I really get disheartened by the rash of incivility in our country and it's almost like too many people feel so much license to abuse I don't know, caregivers or teachers or certainly government officials, doctors. It's almost almost like a sport. And, you know, that's all well and good. Maybe you can get by with bad behavior when you you don't have a need for this to be a long-term relationship. But that's one of the things I really hit in my book is you if you have any interest in in this relationship being long-term, then whether it's you're an employer or a client, it's you have no, it is not in your best interest to be seen as a bad, bad customer, as a bad employer or any of that. It will, it will bite you in the end. And I, and I would argue, even if you're uncivil to somebody in a one-off circumstance and you may never see them again, karma is going to get you. It will, (laughs) it will get you. (laughs) Um, I, I don't know where I'm going to go with this comment, but I couldn't agree more about the frustration with, I I think you put it perfectly, uh, uncivilness. Uh, I don't know if that's a word. Incivility. Uh, Incivility. Yeah. Um, I think that's a word. I I don't know if it would show up on Wordle or not. I guess I'll have to try it sometime. It's maybe too many letters. for, (laughs) For all the beauty that social media can be, the 
the term slacktivism has come up before and mm. it's it's this ability to just bitch and moan and cry or complain or throw rocks at people who you know it, maybe they deserve it maybe they don't based on the role but it's easier to to spread negativity that way than to just then go out and actually volunteer or step up and and try to do something to make it better get involved mm-hmm. um and you know, I, I don't, I don't know where, I don't know where things are going to go. Uh, the divisiveness at the national scale is, is crazy, and I, I think it's really just about, um, kind of going viral and getting attention and stoking emotion, but not actually solving any problems. Uh, and and back to conflict resolution you can't solve problems without relationships and you can't have relationships if you're going to be divisive. Uh, so we're good at, we're good at blaming the other person instead of looking down on the issue. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's all well and good when you can get by with performative acts, but if you have some, something of real substance you need to get done and you need other people, then you just different rules. Well, that, and that's apply. that. Yeah. I agree. And you're talking, you know, tactically where the rubber meets the road, you have a job to do. You have a mission mm-hmm. in, in your role as a, as a steward of, you know, public resources and, and public safety. Um, so you, you've got to figure out ways to get things done and, and a contractor, a consultant that was gonna, you know, badmouth you or something is, is showing, you know, zero interest in the relationship or in the problem solving. Right. Uh, and, I, or a client, I don't imagine you deal with that. Right. Right. Or a client that feels licensed that they can do that with a consultant or contractor. I don't think that's good, good practice either, because I, I agree. All these consultants and contractors have trouble finding enough employees and there are not enough of them to go around. And to a lot of extent, they have choices of who they're going to do business with and it doesn't have to be you. So to, it's a it's an interesting topic there, there might be a full t- podcast on that one uh for another day mm. uh favorite quotes mm. any favorite quote well before i i say one of these i've thought of a few but before i say one of these am i allowed to curse at a pg level or not? sure okay <laughs> i think I, I think i think i just did so okay. yes Okay. Well, I won't start with that one. I'll, I'll let that be a tease for a second, but I'll, I'll give you a couple. And the first one, first one is a quote. And I bring this one up because seeing this quote is what put me over the hump to decide to actually follow through with writing a book. And the quote was, if you really wanted to, you would. And I heard that on one of your podcasts. Uh, I think it might've been the name of an episode. Yeah, you're yeah. right. Um, and you could fill in anything in that blank besides if you really wanted to blank, you would. Uh, if you really wanted to call your parents more often, you would. If you really wanted to lose 10 pounds, you would. If you really wanted to, I don't know, go to the gym more. If you really wanted to, if you decided that was that important, you would do it. You'll do it. Because we'll all make time for something we've decided is important to us. And so seeing that quote kind of made me decide, am I going to write a book or not? And deciding was really helpful. So that was, that was, that kind of put me over the hump of like saying, okay, now I'm just going to fail myself if I don't do it. It's not like, wouldn't it be nice? It's now I'm going to. Right. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. All right. What was the, what was the number two, the teaser quote? Yeah. Well, I I hate to be talking about negative things a little bit. I was doing that a little bit earlier, but 
Um, I came across this once and I just sadly find it to be true, but it's, it goes like this and it's not, it's sort of a quote, but sort of a little, um, story, but it's, uh, Hey, if you wake up in the morning and you run into an asshole, so be it. You ran into an asshole, move on. But if you run into assholes all day long, guess what? You're the, you're the asshole. You're the asshole. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Uh, I like that one. Yeah. So punchline is don't be an asshole. Like if you're in conflict a lot, it's time to start like looking in the mirror and asking some questions. Yeah. Uh, must read books. Hmm. Well, besides my own, uh, besides sorry, yours, sorry. Besides yours. <laughs> yeah, I, my favorite book I ever read, I actually read, I think it was last year and it was called endurance and it's mm. the story of Shackleton's expedition to the South pole from like a hundred years ago. And, uh, you just motivated me. Josh Boyle, my brother-in-law got me that book two Christmases ago. Uh-huh. I picked it up. I got through like the first three chapters and if you really wanted to read the book, you would. I, I I put it down and life distracted me. I'm going to pick it back up because you brought it up. Well, there you go. I, I would say there's no shame. Like uh, I, I had this sort of epiphany one time, which was I used to think like I have to finish a book before I start another one. And sometimes you're in a book and it's just not for you. And that's okay, BJ. If it's not for you, just it's, it doesn't make you a bad person. That's all right. I, and- I think it was for me. I just I have so many open books like sitting around if if you know, the pile gets stacked and one just drops to the bottom. So yeah. I think I was meant to hear this today. Well, and if, you know, I, I was just going to, my point in being, you, it, you don't owe it to the author to finish the book. If it's not for you, just you're better off starting someone else that's going to keep you engaged or maybe it was bad timing for you. But, but anyway, the, the book was written, oh gosh, I want to say in like the 1940s or 1950s. And the guy interviewed all the survivors that were still living. And his writing is almost like, like every chapter is almost like a cliffhanger, almost like a, a Netflix series. Yeah. And their boat gets sort of crushed by the, gets stuck in the ice and gets crushed. And then the entire crew has to like head across the ice and try to find land and survive. And this was like a hundred years ago and it, it's a true story and it's amazing. It's so amazing. Yeah. yeah. And there's, there's leadership lessons to be learned in there too. There's some pretty interesting ones. You sold it. Yeah, I think I think Netflix might pick it up now. They could. It's uh, it yeah, it definitely is already structured. It's just like here you go, make a series. It's ready. Yeah, they're dying for content. I hear. Hmm. There's a, a totally distracting comment, but there's a statistic that there's been more content created in the last ten years than like the previous fifty years or something like that. Um for tv distribution that's amazing i mean like it might even be one year to 10 years it's something like that well i mean like when i was a kid i mean i'm old i'm old enough that i remember a tv without a remote control and and maybe there's like 10 or 15 channels if you had if you had cable uh and so it's just sort of self-limiting and now it's just endless so i could see that but there's only not endlessly good though (laughs) Yeah, there's only so quality, much only so quality much, matters. Only so much good writing out there. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Endurance, Netflix, you heard it here first. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Dead or alive, if you could hang out with three people for a day, who would they be? What would you do? Hmm. 
I'm going to cheat on this one a little bit because I'm going to name more than three people, but the first one's going to be a group. And I'd say my grandparents, all my grandparents. Um, and what would we do is I would just sit down and ask them a lot of questions about their lives that I didn't get a chance to ask when they were still alive. Um, and really part of it is because they have such interesting stories, which I won't go into a ton of detail about, but my, when people see me, they think I'm, I'm Greek or Italian or something, but I'm actually uh, half Lithuanian and half Middle Eastern. My dad, my, my last name is actually Lithuanian and my grandparents on my dad's side were world war II refugees. And so I oh, wow. want to ask so many questions about their whole experience. And, and my dad was the first born in the U S he was the seventh child. So the other six were born during the war and then being displaced people after the war. Uh, so I'd want to, and then my other grandparents, uh, were from Lebanon. My grandfather was from Lebanon and my grandmother was from, she was born in Bethlehem in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. And so I would just want to, wow. I would want to ask them all sorts of questions. That would be really cool. That is cool. Yeah. Uh, the other two, uh, just because I'm fascinated by writing and the creative process. And when I see creative genius, I'm so impressed by it. And I know having tried my hand at some of the, some of that, I don't want to say anything I did was genius, genius, but I put something out into the world and I know how much work that took to, to write a book. And it wasn't even that long of a book and oh my God, that was so much work, but <laughs> I would want to, I would want to hang out with Lin-Manuel Miranda and George Carlin, those two, because um, Hamilton is just so clever and interesting and the music is so good. And it's just so, so many layers of, um, amazing creativity in it. And then George Carlin, just cause he's so insightful and hilarious, but also when you saw him perform, I wanted to know how he got to stuff he would actually do on stage because he was so money and so crisp and his delivery was perfect. Yeah. And it's like, how did you, how much, how did you practice? What was your method? What's your writing method? All that stuff. Where do you come up with this? All right. Last question. Legacy. You've got a nine-year-old daughter. You've got a career that's uh, going pretty well. How do you want to be remembered? What do you want in Tombstone? Oh boy, uh, I think I think it, I wanted to say something about that. I made a difference in the world, but I also made sure we had fun while we were doing it. Awesome. Yeah, we uh, we just had an office Olympics for our office for like a um, sort of a team building thing last week, and it was amazing. <laughs> It was so fun. And it's what what did it encompass? Oh man, we had a like airplane uh paper airplane throwing contest. We had a water balloon relay. We had oh my gosh. Uh I'm gonna blank on some of them. We did things with hula hoops. Um yeah, it was it was fun. We did we did like a rubber band archery. We put some solo cups on a shelf on the wall, and then it was like rubber band archery, and we had teams and we made people give their teams a name and like a theme song. So everybody chose these like, these like cheesy eighties hairband theme songs. That was, we had like, that's great opening ceremony. It was fun. It was great. It's, you know, we can take our work seriously. It doesn't mean we need to take ourselves seriously. So it was good. Agree with that. All right. The floor is yours. We've got listeners from uh, right out of college, maybe even before college through senior professionals on the public and private side. Mm. What would you leave with our industry? I'd say that the, the best and the brightest employees, uh, best and brightest designers and builders, they have choices of, of who they want to work for. 
and even to some extent how much they're going to charge. And the best employers and the best clients, they, they'll attract the most talented people. They'll get more for their money and they'll build better projects. Being either a bad employer or a bad client is bad business. Um, I, I have to comment because it, Gary V and Ryan Holiday, I don't know if you, Gary Vaynerchuk mm -hmm. and Ryan Holiday had a podcast back in December and it was, it was really about Gary V's book release and I think it's 12 plus one. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, it was about his core values, but um, they were really hitting on empathy and the importance to understand that employees have choices. Um, so that, that just made me think of that. I wanted to hit that. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes. And Dave, can't thank you enough for your time, for joining us on Inspiring People and Places. Appreciate your positivity. Appreciate your perspective. And uh, look forward to staying in touch. Thanks, BJ. It was great. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open. Contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.